All right, that's much better. <laughs> Can't do this without a mic, right? <laughs> Thank you, Jared, for giving me this opportunity to, uh, to share an update and also to serve God's word here at our sister church. Um, I bring you greetings from Risen Hope Church. Uh, thank you so much again. Um, Jared asked me to give a five-minute update on Risen Hope Church and our new location uh, in Prospect Park. Uh, we have a hybrid service, much like you guys. 85% uh, of our members are meeting in person on Sundays. Um, let me say this up front. We want to express our deep gratitude uh, to Covenant Fellowship Church for their generous uh, financial and prayer support to us as a church. Uh, we wouldn't be in this building uh, without your real and tangible support, so we thank God for you. Plus, there are also members of Covenant Fellowship who have generously supported us. And so it was a real answer to prayer uh, after being homeless as a church for almost an entire year. So um, I don't want to forget that also uh, Covenant Fellowship Church have, uh, gave us a sizable financial gift uh, as we started our, our campus back in 2015 and loaned out Andy Farmer for our first two years. Uh, where's Uncle Andy at? I'm sure he's out there somewhere. We call him Uncle Andy. Uh, so thank you so much to all the members and the leadership of Covenant Fellowship Church uh, for your generosity and your love and support as our sister church. Amen. Um, but the partnership is a two-way street. Uh, as Covenant Fellowship has been generous to us, it is our joy that we were able to give back in some way by releasing Leo uh, to return and serve uh, back in 2019 uh, so what an honor to co-labor with this man and also Andy Farmer. Uh, praise God for them. Amen. So I have, amen, that's in order. Amen. I do have a couple of updates from our congregation and what we're doing there in Prospect Park. This is a bridge update. Uh, God has been gracious to us. Uh, we conducted our first bridge course since moving into our new building in Prospect Park. Dave Estranall has been doing a phenomenal job with leading this ministry. Bridge started with an initial commitment of three uh, individuals who signed up. And in each week, uh, guests invited other guests. And so far, we've had about 26 people uh, from the neighborhood since March 20th who heard the life-changing gospel of Jesus Christ. So that's a blessing from the Lord. But we're also engaged in what we call Saturate USA uh, last Saturday, we kicked off our first leg of massive outreach uh, in the community, targeting 10,000 homes surrounding our new location. We're hanging up door hangers, uh, bags that include a Jesus film, uh, How Good Are You track, and an invitation to Risen Hope Church. So far, we targeted and we've been able to reach uh, 1,400 homes in the community uh, with those gospel literatures. Amen. Um, and as a result, this past Sunday, uh, last Sunday, we had 17 guests. Uh, we're not sure how many came as a result of that outreach, but God is doing something amazing. Uh, one of the neighbors uh, who actually live across the street from the church, um, always sitting outside watching everyone. You know, in fact, uh, the neighbors call her the watchdog in the community. She sits outside so much that Google aerial maps has literally captured her sitting outside her house. 
But what's amazing is recently uh, she was invited to Bridge and eventually came to visit the church on Sunday. And she, she gave us a very encouraging comment. She said that since you guys have been here, you have made a splash in the community. And that was very encouraging. God is doing some great things in our midst, and I'm glad that we get to join him. Amen? So let me walk you through a quick virtual tour of our new location. I don't have a clicker, so uh, we'll just go through this expeditiously. Amen. Um, so here's a new building. Uh, it is um, bursting with potential for ministry. Uh, so I'll, we'll just run right through these slides, okay? So the, this is, uh, you know, you'll see where we're positioned at in Drexel Hill. We were positioned in Drexel Hill, but now we moved down to Prospect Park where the red dot is located. Next slide. Uh, there is the church building. Um, uh, it's, it's over 100 years old. Um, you can go to the next slide. So this is the administrative part of the building. It was added to it. Um, next. So ba basically this uh, building is big enough to accommodate uh, all the needs and wants for our ministry um, opportunities there in Prospect Park. We have 16 classrooms and three offices. It's handicapped accessible and is well-maintained. So here's the sanctuary. Next slide. Next one. Next. These are overflow rooms in the sanctuary. In fact, really, really cool thing about um, this building is it was a Presbyterian church building, but they built it in a form and the shape of a cross. So you'll see the, the overflow sections of the sanctuary is like the, the cross beam of that cross. So it's really beautiful. Uh, next. So this is a nursery room. Uh, we have plenty of rooms like that. Next. An office space. Well, it used to be a library. And this is the basement. This is where we call our fellowship hall. Fellowship Hall again. This is our kitchen, state of the arts. <laughs> Not quite like Covenant Fellowship Church. Next. Parking is about 100 parking spaces for us. Praise the Lord. So a previous church used a school lot. That's what we'll be doing. Uh, actually, you can skip that slide. You can skip that one as well. Amen. That's where we're located. You can skip that. You can skip that one. <laughs> so these, this is the population or the demographics of, of Prospect Park. As you can see, it's about 6,500 uh, in the area, about a total of 29,100 people in that area, very similar to where we were in Drexel Hill. Next. Next slide. All right. And you can just skip that slide. This was a previous PowerPoint we put together. Amen. That's it. Thank you. <laughs> All right. Like I said, it's a joy and an honor um, to partner with you in gospel ministry. And we praise God for you being our sister church. Amen. If you have your Bibles, uh, meet me in the gospel according to John. The gospel according to John, chapter 6.
John chapter 6. And I'll be reading at verse 60. Can you get there? Say amen. If you're not going to get there, say go on without me. <laughs> That's a Baptist thing. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is a spirit who gives life. The flesh is of no avail. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life, but there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who were the ones who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted him by the Father. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have come to know and believe that you are the Holy One of God. I want to preach on the topic when Jesus separates his fans from his followers. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your Holy Spirit. I have prepared, but I need your anointing. Speak in such a way, Lord God, that your people will indeed be edified that those who don't know you, God, will be evangelized. And most importantly, Lord Jesus, that your name would be glorified. And the people of God say amen. amen. I will never forget that day. It was February 4th, 2018, when the Eagles won the Super Bowl. How many of you were rejoicing on that day? Come on, don't be a hater. I mean, I shouted and jumped up and down in pure excitement. I was with my relatives at the time, and I thought about this, that the Eagles were the underdogs for decades, centuries. <laughs> and suddenly, they defeated the top dog, Patriots, 41 to 33. I remember driving for Uber that day, and lots of people were out and about going nuts. The city was lit up in green, electronic billboards on expressways, tall buildings downtown were all lit up in green. People everywhere were chanting, go birds. They were loud and passionate. The streets were packed downtown with crowds of people wearing eagles jerseys and green t-shirts. You really couldn't discern or tell the difference between the fans from those who weren't. But what about after the Super Bowl, when the Eagles hit a losing season again? How many people jumped off the fan wagon and joined a different team? Kyle Eidemann, in his book, Not a Fan, tells us, especially a fan is one who is enthusiastic. It's the guy who goes to the football game with no shirt on and a painted chest. 
He sits in the stands and chairs for his team. He got a signed jersey on his wall back at home and multiple bumper stickers on the back of his car. But he's never in the game. He's never breaking a sweat. He never takes a hard hit out in the open field. He knows all about the players that can rattle off the latest stats, but he doesn't know the players. You know, he yells and cheers, but nothing is required of him. There's no sacrifice he has to make. And the truth is, as exciting as he seems, if his team begins to lose, his passion wanes pretty quickly. And after several losing seasons, you can expect this fan to jump off the fan wagon and join another team. Just like this man, Jesus had a lot of enthusiastic admirers. These were raving fans. In fact, John tells us he opens up this chapter, giving us an insider edition of Jesus' fans. Look at verse 1 of chapter 6. And after this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. A striking feature in John's gospel are the signs that Jesus performed throughout this narrative in his earthly ministry. And yet this crowd missed every single sign pointing to Jesus as the Messiah. And ironically, they kept demanding for more signs. Jesus graciously put up one sign after another, but the fans didn't get it. But his followers saw the sign and they believed. These people traveled across seas just to see this miraculous worker perform miracles. It was pure entertainment. They were fascinated with the miracles he performed on the sick. These people worked up a sweat, traveling for miles just to hear Jesus. They heard about him turning water into wine in chapter 2, driving money changers out of the temple. They witnessed hundreds of Samaritans come to Jesus as a result of his encounter with the woman at the well. They had a front row seat to Jesus dramatically healing that man who was paralyzed for 38 years of his life. Despite their admiration of Jesus, they kept missing the sign pointing to him as the Messiah. And as Jesus' popularity grew, so did his fan base. But Jesus wasn't looking for any fans. Don't get me wrong, it's not that Jesus didn't care for the crowd. He cared deeply for them. So much so that the scripture tells us that after a full day of teaching, we find Jesus by the Sea of Galilee during the Passover feast, knowing that the multitude was hungry. He performed yet another jaw-dropping miracle. He took a little lad's lunch sack of two fish and five loaves of bread and multiplied it, feeding approximately 20,000 people when you include women and children. It was a spectacular event. In fact, it was a fantastic occasion, one in which these people would never forget. 
So ambition begins to sink in. And after dinner, the crowd decides to camp out the night before just to get next to Jesus. They were already worked up into a frenzy about this miracle worker. But now, after the buffet dinner, they came to the sudden discovery that he was a prophet who had come into the world, showing how little they knew about him. In fact, they knew so little about Jesus that John tells us in verse 15 that they wanted to take him by force and make him king. No doubt. These fans had the stats on Jesus. Like groupies, they traveled far and wide, heard his teaching, saw the miracles, and even camped out to be where Jesus was, just to be where Jesus was. Yet they wanted to make him king, not realizing that he was already king of kings and lord of lords. You see, they had plans for Jesus. Perhaps he could overthrow the Roman government, set up his earthly kingdom. Maybe even a mega golden corral, all-you-can-eat buffet with bread and fish. But Jesus wasn't having it. And in response, he withdrew again to the mountain by himself. And after camping out that night, the crowd woke to discover that Jesus and his boys had already rolled out. Literally, they got in the boat, rolled out. And it didn't take long for these enthusiastic admirers, these fans, to make some observations about Jesus' travel arrangements. Verse 22 through 24. Number one, Jesus was gone. Number two, he didn't leave in a boat with his disciples. And number three, they observed, he wasn't coming back. So what did the crowd do? They did what any dedicated fans would do. They piled into the Tiberius, Tiberius boats and headed for Capernaum, searching desperately for Jesus. The pursuit was on. Now, verse 25, finally, when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said, Rabbi, when did you get here? We've been searching all over for you. Wow. How'd you even get over here? The text tells us that Jesus actually walked on water to get to the other side of the sea. So there they were, restless and mystified by his disappearance. Suddenly they were excited to see him again. But Jesus was not impressed by their pursuit. He sees right through their hearts and calls out their motives. Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw the signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. You see, these fans did not want Jesus. They wanted what Jesus could do for them. They missed the sign and only, only saw the loaves of bread. Then Jesus becomes very emphatic. Verse 27, do not work for food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, Well, what must we be doing to do the works of God? What must we do? They were asking Jesus, in reality, what kind of regulations and requirements must we do to keep this bread coming? 
They wanted a self-salvation project. A self-salvation project is when, when people feel that they need to do something to get on God's good side. I have to earn his favor and merit. A self-salvation project is when you are seeking to become your own savior, your own redeemer through your good works. Listen, if you put your hope in a self-salvation project, it will crush you. The Lord Jesus told the crowd in Luke chapter 9, verse 24, whoever wishes to save his life in his world will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will save it. It is impossible for us to live up to God's standard. We need Jesus. You see, the gospel of Jesus Christ is not about what you do. It's not about what I do. It's about what Christ has already done at Calvary. It's finished. And what he will do as the narrative unfolds, Jesus dies on the cross for their sins. See, what I'm learning is that when we come to the end of ourselves, our achievements, our performances, our self-righteousness, we come to the beginning of Christ. But there is something you can do, Jesus tells them. But it's not what you think it is. Are you ready? Jesus answered them in verse 29, this is the work of God, <laughs> that you believe in him whom he has sent. You want to work? That's the work. Belief in him whom he has sent. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 9 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God and not a result of work, so that no one may boast. This is a free gift from God that can only be appropriated through faith. See, what this crowd failed to realize is that Jesus, the Messiah, plus nothing equals everything. Let me say that again. Jesus, the Messiah, plus nothing equals everything. Say that with me. Jesus, the Messiah, plus nothing equals everything. You see, these fans typically responded like, okay, we can't perform to get on God's good side. What kind of miracle work would you do so that we will believe in you? They asked this question as if they were clueless about what Jesus just did the day before, feeding 20,000 people with the multiplication of two fish and five loaves of bread. What were they thinking about? Now, Jesus masterfully uses the bread as a metaphor to filter out his fans from his followers. As the narrative unfolds, you'll see how four groups of people respond to Jesus' perplexing words. The crowds, the Jews, Jesus' disciples, and the twelve. Note who is still standing when Jesus is finished teaching on discipleship. When the smoke clears and the dust settled, we come to the core of what it means to be a disciple of Christ. Verse 31, he says, Our 
fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. And so Jesus leans in. Verse 32, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it is not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives his life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Although the crowd did not fully register what Jesus was saying about true bread from heaven metaphor, they were still hoping for some a free lunch deal. They said to him, sir, give us this bread always. Jesus responds by giving them a little shock treatment. He does that a lot in the Gospels. Look at verse 35. With words that no one was anticipating. You want this bread always? Here it is. Are you ready? Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. There it is. He said it. God used Moses to bring manna from heaven, but I am the bread of life. Jesus was essentially saying, I am more than enough. Are you satisfied with that? Then believe in me. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Then Jesus elaborates even further from verses 36 through 40. Watch this. You've got to understand the shock value of these words when it landed on the original listeners. In a season of Passover festival, their minds recoiled at Jesus' words. I am the bread from heaven? See, Jesus, this is where he loses the Jews. Verse 41 through 44. The Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread from heaven. Wait a minute, Jesus. We know your father and your mother. You can't be the bread from heaven. We grew up with you. Then Jesus clarifies the bread metaphor even more when he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me has eternal life. Verse 51. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread, watch this, that I give for the life of the world, you ready? Is my flesh. Blew him away. See, Jesus doesn't mince with his words or soften his matches to make it more palatable. No, 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 no. He drills down taking the bread metaphor to its ultimate extreme. And the more Jesus talked, the more it became difficult for them to stomach what he was saying. you got to be kidding me. This bread is your flesh? Verse 53. And Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh, he continues with that line of thought, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. And I will raise them up on the last day. Watch this. For my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Drop the mic. Imagine that. 
This saying was so difficult for them to grasp, eat my flesh and drink my blood. Although Jesus was speaking in spiritual terms, it not only confused the multitude, but it confused the Jews and it even confused his own disciples. This was very hard for the, even his own disciples to process. Look at verse 60. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? Are you talking about cannibalism? Eat your flesh and drink your blood? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is a spirit who gives life. The flesh is of no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. See that? He's clarifying. He's losing the crowd. He loses the Jewish people. And now his own disciples are saying, this is difficult for us to even comprehend. And it's difficult for everyone to even understand this. They say it's hard for us and anybody else to understand this. You see, Jesus had a lot of fans who cheered for him when things were going well, but they jumped off the fan wagon when the season became difficult. That's, that's the definition of a Jesus fan. They were impressed with Jesus, but not impacted by him. Not anybody here, the church down the street. So why does this even matter? Why does John even take the time to reveal to us Jesus downsizing his fan base from 20,000 people to zero and then turns to his own 12 disciples to downsize the 12? Not exactly a popular thing to do. But Jesus wasn't into popular. He was into followers. When Jesus separates his fans from his followers, we find the core of what it means to follow Christ. Are you ready? Sandwiched in between the disciples who abandoned Jesus is the confession of Peter who speaks up for the 11. Embodied in Peter's declaration to Christ, are three critical components defining the essence of what it means to be Christ followers, not fans. Are you ready? The true disciples of Christ, number one, are committed to believing and following Christ as Lord no matter what. Look at verse 60 through 68. When many of his disciples heard it, they said this is a hard saying who can listen to it. And if you jump down, in that verse, you'll see that Jesus says, do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? You see, true disciples of Christ are committed to believing and following Christ as Lord no matter what. 2020 has taken us by storm. Many of us are still recovering from this pandemic. Many of us are still feeling the visceral impact from it right now, even as I speak. I get it. But now more than ever is the time for us to step up. Because we have, many have to uh, worship online, they can't be here physically. You have to go deeper. 
See, Jesus' own disciples abandoned him. This was a difficult saying. Many of them turned back and no longer walked with him. So I had to ask myself a very important question. If his own disciples abandoned him and no longer walked with him, what does it mean to be a disciple? Interestingly, the word Christian is mentioned three times in the whole Bible, whereas disciple is mentioned over 260 times. The term simply means learner or student. The Pharisees had disciples. John the Baptist had disciples. But when Jesus came along, he upgraded what it meant to be his disciples. You see, these would-be disciples were really fringe followers. At best, they were fans like everyone else. The only difference is that they went a little bit deeper, but not deep enough for Jesus to make any demands on them. They tagged along. They rocked the Jesus jerseys. They followed the stats. Go team Jesus. But of course, that's until Jesus had an offseason. When his sayings became difficult to grasp, they bailed out like everyone else. No commitment, no sacrifice, no getting hit out in the open field, just fringe benefits. We want to move in with you, Jesus, but we don't want to make any commitment right now. No doubt, many of these would-be disciples dropped out, not merely because they couldn't stomach Jesus' words, but ultimately because they lacked faith. Jesus revealed their true problem in verse 63 through 64. It is a spirit who gives life the flesh is of no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life, but there are some of you who do not believe. In fact, they probably even, even really knew what they believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who were the ones who did not believe and who was it to betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted him by the Father. You see, there are a lot of people with the faith of Spurgeon Fuller. A friend asked him, what do you believe? He says, well, I believe what the church believes. Well, he says, well, what does the church believe? Well, the church believes what I believe. Well, finally, he says, well, what do you and the church believe? We both believe the same thing. It's funny, though, right? But lots of people are like Mr. Fuller. They're coming to church service but not knowing what they believe. Do you believe what you really, truly believe about Jesus? Because if you do, then that changes everything. For these followers, their faith became defective because they never had genuine faith to begin with. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him, verse 66. But Jesus doesn't back down. He turns to his 12 and begins to downsize his own 12. Do you also want to go away as well? And Peter says, to whom shall we go, Lord? You have the words of eternal life, and we have come to know and believe that you are the Holy One of God. You see, by default, as sinners, we are trapped in active hostility to God. 
We cannot comprehend spiritual truth unless God makes us alive by his spirit and draws us to Christ for salvation in him alone. You see, there is only one kind of follower here when it's all said and done. The one that the Father draws by his spirit, verse 44 and 65. Paul reminds us that no one can call Jesus Lord except by the Spirit of God. These people were powerless to come to Christ on their own. True disciples of Christ are committed to believing and following Christ as their Lord no matter what. But make no mistake about it. It begins with God drawing you by his Spirit. We can do nothing apart from him. Simon Peter answered, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Faith in Christ is the first foundational ingredient to being a true disciple of Christ. Oswald Sanders said that faith is deliberate confidence in the character of God in whose ways you may not understand at the time. regardless of what you're going through right now or what you are experiencing as a follower of Jesus Christ, faith is a deliberate confidence in the character of God in whose ways you may not understand at the time. Peter said, to whom shall we go? Lord, we may not understand you right now, but we're not going anywhere else. Peter, in essence, was saying, We are not fans. You see, for the disciple of Christ, believing and obeying or believing and following Christ are not two separate things. A.W. Tozer rightly said that the Bible recognizes no faith that does not lead to obedience, nor does it recognize any obedience that does not spring from faith. The two are at opposite sides of the same coin. Let me help you out. You remember when Jesus was talking to Nick at night, or Nicodemus, in chapter 3? He said to them in, in John chapter 3, verse 36, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. Whoa. But the wrath of God remains on him. Wow. You see the interchange between obey and believe? You can't have one without the other. Some people say, well, you know, I, I, I believe in Jesus but there's nothing changing in your life. See, at the moment of salvation, we confess Christ as Lord. Romans chapter 10, verse 9 and 10. If you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart, Jesus is Lord, you shall be saved. You see, these individuals tagged along, probably made a profession of faith, but did not have possession of faith. The scripture says, if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart, that's possession of the faith. You see, no person can willingly and knowingly take Christ as Savior and reject him as Lord and be saved. It doesn't work that way. When Paul told the Philippian jailer, believe on what? The Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Acts chapter 16. I like the way St. Augustine said it. Jesus Christ is not valued at all until he is valued above all. See, this is not just for people who don't know him, 
this is for us. We need to preach. I need to preach the gospel to my. I need to preach the gospel to myself every day. Because true disciples of Christ are committed to believing and following Christ as Lord no matter what. They were in it for the long haul. Eugene Peterson said it this way. He said that discipleship is really long obedience in the same direction. True disciples of Christ, number two, are arrested and sustained by the very eternal words of Christ. Verse 67, Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? Peter answered, said, Lord, to whom shall we go? What was Peter getting at when he raised that question? Peter was of the persuasion that there were no other alternatives. There is no other menu. Jesus is not a side dish. He is the main course. He is the bread of heaven. He is the object and the subject of every believer's affections. He is your circumference. He is the center of your world. He is your main attraction. Leonard Sweet and Frank Viola in their book, Jesus Manifesto, said that the reality is Christ trumps everything. All Scripture testifies of him. The Father exalts him. The Spirit magnifies him. The early church knew him as her passion, her message, and her unction of life. Jesus is not an accessory to my life. He is my life. I can put a fish sticker on my bumper and wear a cross around my neck, carry a Bible in my hand, and speak churchanity very fluently. But that doesn't make me a disciple any more than it makes me a car if I stand in a garage all day long. I'll still be a person standing in the garage. I won't be a car. You see, this affectionate question Peter raised reminds me of a song by Lisa McClendon, You Are Holy. I can search the heavens high, I can search the earth below, but there is no one, no one so holy, no one so worthy, no one so faithful. There is no one. Oh, I wish I could sing this song, but I'm not because I don't have the gift. It says stick to preaching. St. Augustine said that you have made us for yourself and our hearts are restless until we find our true rest in you. Lord, to whom shall we go? No one so holy, no one so worthy, no one so faithful. I imagine Peter reminiscing of Psalm 73 read earlier, verse 25 through 27. Whom have I in heaven but you? There is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Is that true for you? For there's a golf side void in every human heart that can only be filled by Christ himself. Are you tracking with me? C.S. Lewis concludes, he says that if I find in myself a desire for which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. That other world C.S. Lewis was referring to is eternal life. A few days ago, I was driving to work, listening to some worship music, being caught up in the moment. I was struck with the reality that we're not merely human beings having a spiritual experience. It's the other way around. We're spiritual beings having a human experience. 
as we await that holy city, traveling as pilgrims to that holy city not made with hands. Peter said, you have the words of eternal life. Later, John tells us that this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. You see, eternal life is not about dying and going to a place. It's not about that. Eternal life is a person. His name is Jesus. You see, it's easy to die and go to heaven. It's much more challenging to live the eternal quality of life in the here and now when the dishes are piling up and the bills need to be paid and the diapers need to be changed. I know about that. Genuine followers attest themselves to the person and work of Christ and abide in his word as we see in chapter 8. True disciples of Christ are arrested and sustained by the very words of Christ, the eternal words of Christ. But lastly, true disciples of Christ come to know Jesus as the Holy One of Israel, the Holy One of God. You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and come to know that you are the Holy One of God. If anyone was profoundly awakened to the holiness of Christ in the New Testament, it was Peter, the spokesperson for the Twelve. You recall that dramatic encounter that Peter had with Jesus on the day when he went out fishing with his boys and caught nothing. It was a lousy night. So what does Jesus do? He climbed into his boat and told him to push out into the deep for a catch. Peter, expert fisherman, probably looks at Jesus and says, Rabbi, uh, are you kidding me right now? We've been fishing all night and caught nothing. But nevertheless, at your word, I will let down the net. And what happens next profoundly changed Peter forever. Peter and his boys caught so much fish that their nets began to break, forcing him to call for backup. And the two boats so full of fish that their boats began to sink. It was more fish that Peter could see in his entire lifetime in one setting. Peter broke down, melting before the feet of Christ, completely overwhelmed, not merely by the catch of fish, but by the sheer magnitude of the holiness of Christ. He said, Lord, depart from me, for I am a sinful man. Do you now hear the force of Peter's words? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and come to know that you are the Holy One of Israel, forcing him to see the depth of his own wickedness, he saw that part of him that was an active hostility against God. And that fisherman surrendered his life to Christ that moment. See, Peter didn't have a category for Jesus as he laid there prostrate before him. His soul quaked. Jesus Christ was so other, so separate, supremely different, so pure that anyone could ever have seen. You are the Holy One of God. Peter would later write, Jesus committed no sin in 1 Peter chapter 2. John said that there was no sin found in him, 1 John chapter 3. Paul said that he knew no sin, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. You see, the Hebrew writer even says that he was holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, Hebrews chapter 7. Peter became so captivated by the supremacy and sovereignty and holiness of Christ that he later writes, Be holy. For God says, be holy, for I am holy. And none of this is possible apart from faith in Christ. So after Jesus challenged the crowd 
and the Jewish people and his own disciples. He wasn't done downsizing. He says, do you, do you want to go away as well? Peter says, no, you have the words of eternal life. And Jesus responds by saying what? Didn't I not choose you, the 12, and yet one of you is a devil? He was speaking of Judas, Iscariot, the one who would betray him. You see, the definition of Christ's followers is found in the 11. So let me ask you a question. Are you a fan or are you a follower? I became a Christian in my late teens. And in some ways, I was a, a follower, but I had the mentality of a fan. And I remember having this experience, a breaking point, where I felt the Lord was calling me to go deeper. And I remember that time I was in my mother's house, and I went down into the basement. I was around eight, seven, 18, 19 years old. I went to the basement just to pray for about 15 minutes, and that 15 minutes turned into three hours. And suddenly, as I was on my knees praying, I started to speak in an unknown language. I never spoke after that day. It was, a, it was an unknown language. It was, I was speaking in tongues. And then I got an impression that the Lord was telling me, take the dams down. You're holding back. And then he revealed to me, out of your belly shall flow rivers of living water. In that moment, I broke down in tears and I just kept speaking in tongues, and I was so fascinated with the tongues, I just kept walking all around the house speaking in tongues. And I said, well, if that's the Lord, he's always going to reveal himself through the word. Where is that in the word? And in the very next chapter, John records that Jesus says, believe on the Lord Jesus, and out of your belly shall flow rivers of living water you have been holding back. You, you have been a follower with a fan mentality, but I want you to go deeper. And that's when that was a breaking point that made me, you know what, I want to go to Bible college. I went away to Bible college and I went away to seminary and graduated from both. And you say, well, that's your experience. But let me ask you a question. What is your experience? Are you a fan or a follower or a follower with, with a fan mentality? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, and we pray that your word will penetrate the hearts of your people, Lord God, that we will indeed be true followers of Christ. In Jesus' name, and all the people of God say amen.